Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest PQ&A. Uh, this is our TruthQuest podcast, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere that you subscribe to podcasts. Uh, we have full-length teachings, we do hot topics, and we have a Q&A. This is our Q&A, where we look at your questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what the Bible has to say so that we can know what to believe, not just to believe it because we've been taught it. We want to be able to search the scriptures to find out whether the things we've been taught are true. We also want to make sure that we rightly divide the word of God, for it is inspired by him, profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man or the woman of God could be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. It's good to see you guys. We have a question that's already loaded. Let's get right at it. Uh, this one comes from an earlier uh, Q&A, and this one says, should the state be involved in the church and vice versa. Uh, so, the, of course, in, in America, we have the separation of church and state. And it's a good thing to have the church and the state separated. But just because we want to have a separation of church and state doesn't mean that people who are in the church can't be involved in the state and people who are involved in the state can't be involved in the church. The real problem is when the church and the state are the same or when the state tries to get involved in the church where it shouldn't do it, um, that's, that's the real danger. And so the question, should the state be involved in the church? I think the answer to that is no. And I think that the reason that our constitution was set up the way it was is because a lot of our founding fathers had come from the Church of England where the church ran the state and there were a lot of problems with it. Um, now, vice versa, should the state be involved in the church? And the answer to that is limited. I mean, there are nuances, right? Uh, we want to be able to look at nuances. And if the church, if someone's using the church as a cover and trying to do something illegal, then the state's got to have enough access to be able to figure that out. The state could abuse their position. The church could abuse its position, but there needs to be a nuance on how we're involved in both of them. As far as how political a church gets, I think that's a decision for each church to make. Uh, Calvary Tucson, we don't want to be political at all because we believe that the answers to life come from Jesus Christ and not from politics. And uh, politics have very little answers and are going to change very little. But Jesus Christ can change lives. He can touch hearts. And so I would rather spend the time that we have in church preaching about Christ rather than being political at all. So thank you very much for your first question. I appreciate this. That question was left at a, at a previous uh, Q&A. If you've just tuned in, you've tuned in to, pod, uh, to TruthQuest podcast. And we want to welcome you guys. Uh, you can subscribe to our podcast anywhere that you subscribe for them. Just look for TruthQuest with Robert Furrow. There's full-length teachings, there are hot topics, and there are also Q&As like we're doing today. Um, we upload three different uh, teachings a, a week and take our time to be able to search the scriptures to find out what the Bible has to say about what we believe. So thank you very much for your questions. If you have a question and you're joining us for the first time, just write the word question in front of your question. That's the best way for me to be able to identify it quickly. It's good to see you guys. I hope you guys are really blessed by the time that we are spending uh, here today. All right. 
So uh, let's go ahead and take our first question from our comment section today. Uh, we have Andre that has a comment loaded up. Andre joins us from YouTube. Uh, Andre says, the Lord is clearly in favor of borders, Acts 17, 26. Yet nowadays, a lot of the world leaders, including the Pope, are not. Ignorance or just a prelude to a type of of to a one world government daniel chapter 7 and revelation chapter 13. Uh, let's go ahead and take a look at that passage um andre i i do believe that there is we are moving towards a one world government and i don't believe there's anything that we're going to be able to do i guess we could fight it as long as we can fight it but we know that the antichrist is head over a revived roman empire that isn't as strong as the first empire the iron, the legs of iron, but it's the toes of iron and clay. It's mixed with clay and it's fragile and all world governing is going to come tumbling down um, when the rock not made with hands taps uh, those toes made of iron and clay and they come tumbling down. But I do want to look at this passage. I do like this, this uh, passage. It's Acts 17. Paul is giving his uh, address to, uh, to Athens. He's on the Aragopagus or Mars Hill uh, there in Athens. And he makes this statement in the middle of it. And it's a really interesting statement. Uh, so in verse 26, he says, uh, let me go ahead and get this up here. Uh, 20, yeah, well, we're going to do 26 and 27. So I'm going to go ahead and put the scriptures up on the screen for you guys. And um, then we'll take a look at it here. So we'll start in verse 26, and it says, And he has made from one blood every nation. By the way, that tells us something as well, right? That we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter where we come from. So he has made us all from one blood. Every nation of men who dwell on the face of the earth has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. So I'm not sure, Andre, that God is saying that he's, that he's the one who set up the, the boundaries. Um, for example, in Israel, one of the things the Bible says is that God's going to judge people because they divided his land. I'm, God in his sovereignty and God is in control. And I think that you could talk about boundaries, uh, God setting up national boundaries, although I'm not sure that he draws all of them or that some of them are not drawn by men but the pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. It means that as I move in my life, God's the one who put me here. I'm in Tucson because God put me here. I was born in Iowa because God put me there. I was in Albuquerque and I came to know the Lord because God put me there. It goes, it goes on to say, uh, so they will seek him, uh, so they will should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. That's an interesting passage. It tells us that God has placed men in times and dwellings so that they will grope for him and find, that they might be able to grope for him and find him. So God's putting people in certain places. He puts them there so that they would be able to find him. That's an, an interesting passage and I think has a lot uh, that it can say. Uh, Andre, when it comes to the one world government, like I said, I don't know that we're going to be able to fight that ultimately because the antichrist is on his way and um yeah because the antichrist is on his way and there will be a one world government uh that that comes up and if you really want to push to uh, you know you really want to say 
that God establishes boundaries, God allows there to be a one world government. God allows men free choice. God allows some men to draw wrong boundaries. <clears throat> God establishes other boundaries and other places. And um, yeah, we're headed towards a one world government. And I think we're seeing that come, uh, you know, come about today. Another thing that's interesting, and I talked about this a little bit before, and that is that the Euphrates River is drying up. Take a look at it. The Bible says that the Euphrates River will dry up and a large army will come across it. And uh, just seeing the Euphrates River dried up today is really, really interesting. All right. So thank you, Andre, for your question. I appreciate it. Now let's go ahead and take another question. Uh, we have a question here from Andy and Tanya. Uh, they say, is the King James Bible the best one to use? If so, why? Thanks. So this is a controversial area, and it's been a controversial area for a while. The King James Bible and the New King James Bible come from a certain set of manuscripts. These manuscripts were complete uh, a, a few hundred years ago, and they come from that. And so the King James, there, there's a group of people that are called the King James only, and I am not a King James only person, but they believe that the manuscripts that the King James Bible was taken from is better than any of the later manuscripts that have been found. And it's true that the NIV or ESV or NASV, even the New King James Version to some degree, takes uh, into account manuscripts that have been discovered lately, maybe even later manuscripts. And this is something that, that those who are involved in textual science have to make decisions on looking and comparing manuscripts. And in the footnotes of your study Bibles, you're going to find information about the texts that you're looking at and whether or not they are right or wrong. Now, the King James argument, the King James only argument doesn't only talk about the manuscripts that they took the King James from and the manuscripts that the NIV or ESV come from. Uh, they believe that God supernaturally put in every word of the King James Version translation and in 1611, which of course they're not even using. They're not using a 1611 version. Very, very few of them are uh, because the words are so hard to understand from those particular translations. Um, but they believe that, that God got anointed that, that he inspired the actual English version. I don't believe that. There are some mistakes in the King James Bible, the King James version of the Bible. That's not saying that there's mistakes in the scriptures because you and I have been given the manuscripts that we compare and contrast. And someone had to put together the, 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 the manuscript evidence that in 1611, the King James Bible was written from. So now you're going back and saying that God inspired the putting together of manuscripts and left some manuscripts out on purpose. What I do know is that Psalms 12 promises that God is going to preserve his word from generation to generation. And I believe that God has done that. And I do know that there are passages in the Bible that you look at and you have to make a decision. You look at manuscript evidence and you've got to make a decision. And when you're putting together a version, you have to do that. And that shouldn't, that shouldn't shake us up. That shouldn't worry us. Uh, we should understand clearly 
that God's got things in, 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 and he keeps the word of God pure to us, even though there are some things that are in one manuscript or another that are questionable. Um, God didn't supernaturally float the Bible down from heaven uh, in the King James Version and give it to us. So, um, no, I personally, I don't think the King James Version is the best because we don't talk that way anymore. Um, especially the 1611 King James Version, which is the one that they say uh, that the reason that they're King James Version only. Uh, it is a it is a little bit more complicated argument than that, but it has to do with the manuscripts that were used uh, for later Bibles and for the King James Version and that people believe that the King James Version was inspired. It's interesting in, in the Mormon, in the Book of Mormon, there, he used the King James Bible to copy over sections that he said he was translating from golden tablets. This is Joseph Smith. And he copied over some of the mistakes in the King James Bible, the, from the manuscript mistakes that were made from the manuscripts over into the King James Bible. And so that'll tell you something about Mormonism as well, as that the King James version of the Bible is not inerrant. Now, there are some people who are gonna call me anathema for that, but I do not believe that the King James version of the Bible is inerrant. It is a good, um, it is a good Bible and it is a good study Bible. But as always, we could go back to the original manuscripts and get the most information that we can uh, to be able uh, to, to put together God's word, which is so very powerful. There are almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts that have been found. Uh, there are 25,000 manuscripts. A manuscript is something written before the time of the printing press. So somebody had to copy it from something that they copied. And um, we have great confidence that we've been able to put back together again what the original writings were because we're able to, to like a tree, put these different manuscripts in different places and see where they've come from and what was copied from what. It's, very, it's a very exact science and it's very powerful. So thank you very much for your question, Andy and Tanya. I appreciate that. Um, hopefully that answers your questions. Uh, we can have a follow-up if you would like that as well. If you're listening, watching this program for the very first time, really glad that you're here. We hope that you're blessed. If you have a question, write the word question down, then write your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and put it in the comment section and we will take a look at it. Um, so we have a question here from Alex. Alex, good to see you. Alex says, if a person cheats on their spouse and is divorced, but later is saved and forgiven, can they remarry and be right with God? Okay, so um, marriage, divorce, remarriage, and the Christian uh, is just a really complicated topic. And I generally will send people to a pastor now, if they've got a complicated question about Christians divorcing and remarrying, because things are rarely as cut and dry as what you find here in your question, Alex. I would like to know, I would like to ask a few questions. I would like to know how long were they married? Is the other person still married? Um, is, um, has the other person been faithful in the relationship? Uh, how long has it been? Um, and so there are some other things that would connect. We could assume some stuff. We could say um, if a person cheats in their spouse and is divorced, 
but later is saved, can they remarry and be right again? They certainly could remarry the same person if they're not married again, right? Um, they may be able to remarry if their spouse has remarried. So there's just a, a little bit more information that you would have to have. Um, if we try to assume, let's just say that this person cheated on their spouse, their spouse is still single, their spouse wants nothing to do with them, okay? Um, because they cheated on them. So they divorce and then they're saved and their spouse is still unmarried and hasn't had a, a, a sexual relationship with anyone, then I would say, no, that person cannot remarry. That it's just a matter of, of our, our relationship with God is what really satisfies us and fulfills us. That's the satisfaction that we've got. And as Christians, we say, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. I want to live the kind of life that you want me to live. And so to when it comes to marriage and divorce, I found that a lot of people just don't do it. They'll, they'll do what they want to do and try to repent later on. And I always tell them, I don't know, God's, God will not be mocked. So there could be circumstances in which your, your question would be a yes, and there are circumstances on which your question would be a no. All right. So thank you, Alex, for your question. I really appreciate that. Um, if you have, uh, you want to give a little bit more information or you want to ask, I don't know if that's a hypothetical question or not. You want to clarify that hypothetical, hypothetical question. Uh, you can do that, but it is good to see you. We have a question here from Jari. Jari comes to us from YouTube. Good to see you. Uh, Jari says, why did God specifically choose Abraham, Israel as a nation and not another nation? I have no idea. I don't know. So God could have chosen anyone, right? But God chose Abraham. And we know that Abraham was living with his parents in the area of Ur and they were idolaters. So we assume Abraham being 75 years old when God called him, that Abraham was an idolater when God called him. Then God called him to bring him into a land that he would show him. And then when he got there, God told him, I'm gonna give you and your descendants this land. So God was going to establish a kingdom uh, a nation that would bring the Messiah into the world, that he would also bring back to himself in the last days as he would eventually promise. And he gave them the land of Israel and God chose Abraham to do that. There's no possible way that we would, would ever know, Jari, why God chose Abraham. The Bible doesn't say it. The Bible could tell us, but we do know that Abraham did become a friend of God, which is really neat. We also uh, know that Abraham loved God and built altars to him and so and gave sacrifices on those altars. This is before the law when sacrifices were given under the law. So there may be something to that as well. Uh, other than that, I can't think of anything else uh, with Abraham, with the nation of Israel. Hey, God was going to have that nation, was, could have chosen anybody to bring the nation through. And God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the 12 sons of Jacob to be the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. All right, so thank you very much, Jari. I appreciate your question. Thank you for it. It's good to see you guys. I hope you guys are blessed by the time that you spend here today as we take time to look at questions through the lens of God's word to see if we might be able to make, to make sure that what we are believing is correct and proper. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, this is from Barbara. Uh, Barbara says, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the word homosexual, um, uh, she has a footnote in there, appears. I thought the word never appeared in the Bible, 
My Bible is the King New King James Version. I received it from Calvary. All right, Barbara. Well, let me just go ahead and take time to pull up my um, Strong's Concordance, and we will go to that passage, and we'll see if we can take a look at the Word. Um, I have just the Strong's Concordance on my phone that I want to take time to look up. Um, there are better word studies that are out there, and um, that you could take time to really look up these words. Uh, you could do it by just typing in word study. There's going to be uh, tools that'll come up on your computer that you'll really be able to dive in and find out more. Um, all right, let's see. So this is the King James Bible. Um, let me see if I can figure out. This is, uh, yeah, this is the King James. Let me see if I can figure it out in the New King James. I mean, in the... Uh, Let's see, in the New King James, what word is translated homosexual? We'll be able to take a closer look at that. All right, so I'm going to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verse 9. All right, so let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and bring that up on the, the screen. I'm going to bring, first of all, the New King James Version up on it. And uh, so uh, here it says, um, these things to, to you, brethren, do not, um, let's go back down here. So let's start in verse seven. Now, therefore, um, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to the law against one another. Why do you rather accept, why don't you rather accept the wrong? Why would you not rather let someone be cheated? Now you yourselves do wrong and cheat and do not do these things uh, to your brethren. Do you not know that unrighteousness will not, un that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. All right, so let me go ahead and compare that now to, and see if we can figure that out. Um, if we can figure out which one it is, let's go over to the my Strong's here. Um, know ye not that unrighteousness shall not inherit the kingdom of God, but shall not be deceived. Uh, for fornicators, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. All right, so let's go ahead and take a look at this word for effeminate first of all. All right, um, and so this is the word that's translated homosexual. Of uncertain affinity, soft, fine, figuratively. Okay, so it doesn't really give us a lot of information as to why they chose to translate it the way that they did. So let's go back and look at the abusers of themselves, um, a sodomite abuser self um, with mankind. Um, okay, so yeah, those are the words uh, that are used there. And I do think that they do mean homosexual. Um, I think that, that both of those there, those words mean that. Um, let me go ahead and get my Bible back up here again. Uh, just because I'll need it in a couple minutes. So I do, I think that both of those words um, do mean homosexual. 
And um, yeah, I don't, the word effeminate there. So you would have to go in and do a word study and look at the way that the word was used in other contexts to be able to really start to take a look and dig into what the Greek words that are used there are. I don't know that the Strong's Concordance and um, the New King James Bible are enough to really dive into them, but I do think that they're accurate in what they're saying. All right. Thanks, Barbara. I appreciate I appreciate your question. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to go ahead and bring in another question here. It's good to see you guys. Good to see you. Um, Daniel, nice, nice to always have you here. So John uh, has a question. He says, if we fight against prophecy, aren't we fighting against God? I don't think we can stand around passively, but where do you draw the line in fighting? Yeah, I think it's always a, it, it can always be problematic to try to make prophecy happen. This is always the danger um, of a Christian getting into office that might have some power to try to head things towards prophetic aspects. And um, we don't want that. Uh, we God's going to bring, a, God said that certain things were going to happen, right? That's what prophecy is, God foretelling the future. And so God telling us that these things are going to take place, these things are going to happen, uh, doesn't mean that we are trying to make them happen. Like there's some things that the Bible says in prophecy, like um, the gospel we preached around the world and then the end will come. Well, we want to preach the gospel around the world, whether we're trying to make the end come or not. That shouldn't be our goal. Our goal should be trying to get people saved, seeing people come to Christ, seeing people enter in to a, just a good relationship, a good solid relationship with God. So John, um, I'm not quite sure exactly um, how we would fight against prophecy. I don't think it would be successful at all. And if you want to try to clarify that, if I'm missing something and reading your question wrong, then go ahead and submit it. I'll take a look in a little while and see if um, you've got anything else up. All right. So um, Golden Truth has a question. Golden Truth joins us from YouTube as well. Hello, Pastor. Um, um, no question. Apologies. Nephew likes to mess around with adult phones. Ah, okay. Well, good to see you, Golden Truth. Um, all right. That's great. All right. So let's go ahead and bring in another question here. All right. So we have a question from Shelly. Shelly says, um, in, in uh, the seventh chapter of Revelation, verses five and six, is the woman Israel and her son Jesus. And when it says her child was caught up to God and his throne, is this referring to the church? All right, well, let's go ahead and take, take a look at this. So I'm going to go ahead and pull up Revelation chapter 7 and take a look at this passage. I know what it is, but I want to make sure that we're reading it correctly. Uh, verses 5 and 6. Um, yeah, so I don't think it's chapter 7. I think it's chapter 11. Let me just take a look here um, and see if I can find it really quick. Which I think it's chapter 11 or 12. Maybe it's 12. I'm going to try 12 first of all. Um, yeah, it's, it's 12. All right. So let me go ahead and 
bring you up on the screen here and we'll take a look at it. So uh, we looked at this passage here a couple of weeks ago on one of our Q&As. Another sign appeared, and we're going to go all the way back to verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, seven diadems on his heads, and he drew, and his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth and devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was uh, to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So that tells us that it's Christ. There are other passages in the Bible that tell us that the Messiah is going to rule with, will rule with a rod of iron. So this is, is, is Israel. Um, the dragon is Satan. And maybe Satan's influence of the last world power because of the way it's described there. Um, and it goes on to say, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. And I think that's talking about Jesus' death and um, being caught up to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. This is during the tribulation period. God supernaturally protects Israel in the wilderness um, that they should um, feed uh, her there 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. So this is for the second three and a half year tribulation period um, there. So let's go back to your question. Make sure I got all the aspects of it answered. Um, so Shelley, um, in Revelation chapter 12, um, in verses five and six, the woman, um, Israel and her son, Jesus also, when it says the child was caught up to heaven and thrown, is this referring to the church? No, the church will be caught up into heaven, but no, it's talking about Jesus and it's talking about his ascension. So in the book of Acts from, I think it's the Mount of Olives that Jesus ascends, uh, up into heaven after his resurrection. And, uh, Shelley, I believe that that's what that's talking about. All right. So thank you very much uh, for your question. I hope you have a great day. Shelly joins us from Facebook. Uh, we're on three different platforms, four different platforms, by the way, three Facebook pages and one YouTube page. Uh, so we have a question from JG. JG, good to see you. JG says, what other Bible colleges would you suggest going to besides Calvary Chapel Bible College in Costa Mesa and Ranch uh, and reach college in Tucson. Well, I think there's a lot of good Bible colleges that are out there um, and even good seminaries that are out there. There's a lot of bad ones, but there's a lot of good ones. Um, and uh, I think that Sierra Vista has a, has a really good school of ministry that they've had for a while. I know Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque has a good school of ministry that's been there for a while um, that would be good to go to. So, uh, JG, I think that those could be um, options for you. Take a look at the kind of things that they do. Some of them are more school-based. Uh, I know a lot of Calvaries have school of ministries, so it may take some research uh, to be able to take a look at them to try to figure out what they are. I went through a school, a shepherd school, which was a, which was a school specifically for pastors in Albuquerque um, with Skip Heitzig. Skip took a, a, a few of us that he believed had the gift of teaching and took us through a shepherd school to prepare us uh, for being able to teach. So, um, but Albuquerque has a, a, a school of ministry now, which is a very good one. And I know a lot of people um, that have uh, graduated from that one. Okay, JG, so thank you very much. I hope that's helpful. Um, if, um, if I have any more suggestions for you, I'll let you know, all right, in the, in the future. 
So um, we have a question from Adrian. Adrian says, uh, and comes to us from Facebook. Uh, Hi, Pastor Robert. Can you please discuss the symbolism that you see in Exodus chapter 17 when God tells Moses to take in your hand your rod, which uh, you struck the river, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it. Thank you, and God bless. So the New Testament tells us that this rock is Christ. And the rock followed them around in the wilderness. This is the same rock that Moses strikes twice angrily when he was only supposed to speak to the rock. And um, and for that reason, he wasn't able to go into the promised land. Um, I think that the symbolism is that Jesus is the rock, right? He's the rock on which the church was built. Um, he is the rock in Daniel that comes out and taps the statue on the toes and causes the entire statue to crumble and collapse to the ground. He is the solid rock on which our lives are built upon. Um, the Bible says that Jesus said, fall on the rock and be broken, or the rock will fall upon you and crush you. And that, that just means that if you don't surrender your life to Jesus and live wholeheartedly for him, giving up your life, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake shall save it. Um, if you don't do that, if you don't fall on the rock and are broken, the rock will fall upon you and crush you. And so I think all of these things speak of Jesus. Um, he, uh, Jesus stood up on the day that they poured out the, wa- the, the, the drink offering in the temple. Jesus stood up and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come after me and drink. And out of him will gush torrents of living water. So Jesus is the living water that we drink from. And I think the symbolism is there is strong that he becomes our rock and that he becomes our water as well. And all this talk of water makes me thirsty. All right, so hopefully, um, and, and, and Adrian, without being able to take a, a look back at it, uh, so I, I mean, I, I've taught it before, um, but uh, when you're answering things right off the top of your head, you understand that there's more richness that you just can't recall. And I know that about this particular passage. There's some really rich aspects about it that right now I'm just having some trouble recalling. So my question is um, inadequate. It just is not at it. It just doesn't cover it completely and totally uh, because I don't remember it all. There really is more there. All right. So thank you. But um, that's the symbolism um, that I can think of right now. All right. So um, let's see. We have a question from Matt Grossman. Uh, I think we had this question a little earlier. What is the origin of the King James um, that they named? A version of the Bible after it. All right, that's a good question, Matt. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, so it was ordered by King James in 1611, and there were, I think, 70 men that were brought together to be able to put together the King James version of the Bible, and they worked off of a certain set of manuscripts and. Um, I'm trying to remember what the name of the manuscripts are. The Texas Receptus, I believe, but I, I could be wrong. Um, but there were a certain set of manuscripts that they worked off on. But your question is, they named it the King James Bible because King James ordered the Bible to be written. All right. So thank you. Uh, that, that, that's as far as I understand it, by the way. If I'm wrong, sorry, but that's what I understand is that King James gave an order for that Bible to be written. All right. All right, it's good to see you, and you're welcome, Debbie. Debbie just says, thank you for answering questions. I pay up. Yeah, my pleasure. 
I'm, I'm really blessed to be able to get on here and do this. I think you guys um, ask great questions and it really helps me to understand what people are looking for and it really has helped me in putting my messages together to spend time on areas that I think people are really curious about and really want to know. So um, we have a question from Brad. Brad comes to us from YouTube. Good to have you on here, Brad. Hope you're blessed. Uh, Brad says, does 1 Timothy 3, 2 mean a preacher cannot be divorced or that he can only be married to one woman at a time? So I would normally go and look this up, but I know exactly what he's talking about. It says that a, 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 a an elder cannot be a, a husband to more than one wife. And it's talking about polygamy. Um, if he was talking about divorce, he would have to get more particular about it. Because what about when a person is is widowed and they remarry? Now they've had two wives. Um, so I, I don't think it's saying anything about divorce. There are divorces for different reasons. And a divorce could disqualify someone from being in the pastorate, from, from pastoring. Paul said, I beat my body daily less after I preached the gospel, I would be disqualified. So there are disqualifying events that disqualifies you from being a pastor. Uh, there, there are divorces that don't do that. I have friends who have been divorced and they've been pastoring for years and the divorce wasn't something that they did. It's something that, that they went through. It's something that happened to them that led to the divorce. They may have initiated the divorce, but something happened in them to give them the right to be able to divorce. So I don't think divorce is an issue at all. I realize that there are some that read it that way. Personally, I think that's the wrong way uh, to read that passage. All right. Thank you, uh, Bradley. I appreciate that. There was in their day... There, were, there was a lot of polygamy that, that took place. And uh, you know the Bible said, for this reason, a man and a woman should leave the father and mother and two shall cleave together um, and be one flesh. And all of the polygamy that we find in the Bible, whether it's Abraham, uh, Jacob, David, Solomon, all of the polygamy causes problems and obviously was, was not a good thing. So we have a question here from Renee. And Renee says, question, is Jesus already seated at the right hand of the Father, or does this happen when Israel makes him their Messiah? Thank you, Pastor Robert. So in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being stoned. And the Bible says that he looks up into heaven. He's the very first martyr of the church. He's the first Christian to be killed for his faith. And that he looks up into heaven and he sees, the, and he sees in the skies the Son of Man standing by the right hand of the Father. I believe that he's standing up to receive Stephen. And I believe that Jesus is sitting, my understanding, sitting now at the right hand of the Father. That this is his throne. Um, and I would really be interested to take a look at Revelation. I think Revelation has the Lamb of God slain from before the foundations of the world on a throne in Revelation chapter 4. That would be Jesus on a throne in Revelation chapter 4. And I really think that's that's what it says, but I can't remember exactly. And I don't want to take time uh, to go back over and look it up if, if it's not the exact verses. So if you want to put on those verses uh, up there, I believe personally 
that Jesus is sitting on the right hand of the Father even now. Um, if there's a, a, a passage that would make us think otherwise, I don't know what that passage would be. That's just where I stand right now, okay? And personally think about that um, right now. And you are welcome, Renee. I really appreciate you. And I appreciate um, the questions that you bring. I want to welcome you if you're new here on a Truth Quest podcast. I want to remind you that you can subscribe to the podcast by going to wherever you subscribe to podcasts and look for Truth Quest with Robert Furrow and you can subscribe to the podcast. It has our full-length teachings that are on there, our hot topics, one that's released every week, and these Q&As. So you can listen to the latest teachings, you can listen to the latest Q&As, the latest hot topics, and be able to find information and, and that, that could just be helpful to you in your walk with Christ. I also um, want to take time um, Let's see. All right, so John uh, clarifies his question that he asked a little bit earlier about fighting against prophecy. Um, John says, sorry, I meant, can we fight against the forming of the one world government if we are still here, like fighting against abortion, sex slavery, etc." cetera? Um, yes, thanks for clarifying that, John. I was just reading your question wrong. Um, yes, yeah, we can fight against it. You know, we... We want God, we want Jesus to come back. We want him to wait as long as he possibly can. We know that the days have to be moved up or no flesh would remain upon the earth. And I think that's telling us that we would eventually destroy ourselves. And so God had to move it up. But Peter tells us that God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And God's not slack concerning his promises as some count slackness. And so God's desire is for people to get saved. So we want to see as many people saved as possible. So sure, if if I have a vote, it just if say the one world government comes about and I'm here and I have a vote for that against that one world government, I'm going to vote against that one world government. And in that way, I'm going to fight against it. So yes, I think that we can fight against um, these things um, in uh, as much as we can. It's not going to stop it, right? It may put it off, but in God's timing, it's going to be here and it's going to be established and it will be a sign that we are living in the last days at the very end of times. All right. And um, so that's an, that's an interesting question because I think a lot of things that we have um, today, uh, prophecies, we would, we would want to stand against these things. Um, all right. So I want to clarify a question here with Shelley. So Shelley asked the question about Revelation chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, about the woman that the dragon wants to attack the baby that's born. The woman is Israel, and the child who was born is Jesus, and Satan tries to kill him. And we see this with Herod trying to kill the babies and Satan trying to kill, to kill Jesus um, all the way to the cross, but it was the way that he was defeated, all right? So, um, Shelly, you could go back and listen to the rest of the question. I can't remember what other points you made on that question there. Oh, whether or not the church was the one caught up into heaven. No, the, the child is caught up into heaven. That is, that lives here, dies, resurrected Jesus, and then he ascends into heaven uh, in Acts, I think, chapter 1. We have the ascension there, okay? So, um, thanks, Shelly, for clarifying that or asking that question again. I'm glad to put you back up on here and take a look at it. All right. So if you have a question, write the word question in front of your question. 
read your question a couple times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit your question. It's always good to see you guys, and I hope you're all doing really well. Um, we take time to look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Again, our desire is to know what is right and what, you know, so that we are not believing what's wrong. Just because we've been taught something or just because we believe something doesn't make it right. The Bible says that we ought to be, that we should be willing or ready <clears throat> to give an answer to what we believe. And so we want to search the scriptures to find out whether or not those things are so. I'm going to come back to the top of the comment section here to see if I missed any questions. And if I didn't, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. If you have a question now, then go ahead and write question in front of it. Then write out your question and go ahead and submit it. All right. Um, so it looks like we have got our, looks like we have our questions uh, for today. Let me go ahead and go back down to the, the bottom again and see if anybody submitted any questions here. All right. Yes, rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay, so um, thank you guys very much for joining us today. Um, it, we will have, uh, it is now, it's 3.45 at 6 o'clock. We're going to have a service. Uh, we're going to be talking about humility today. We're going to be talking about the importance of humility. And we are living in the selfie generation where we become self-obsessed with ourselves. There's even a category today that's called selfies gone wrong. There are more people who die from selfies than from shark attacks in our world today. They're taking their selfie and something happens and they end up dying because uh, they're taking the selfie. So we want to make sure that in the selfie generation that we are not narcissistic. In fact, in a recent study, they found that there are approximately three more times narciss three more times the narcissistic people today than there were in the 1980s, which is a pretty incredible statement. Our culture seems to develop narcissism. Narcissist was the Greek god who found a pool of water in a cave, looked at himself and loved the way that he looked so much that he didn't get up and eat or do anything else. He just looked at himself until he died. That's narciss. And narcissism is that way. We have a tendency to, and, and we can do this with, with, with social media. In fact, I do wonder if there will not come a time in the future when we'll take a look at social media as it is today and not see it as something that has caused a, a great amount of problems because people become so introspective. Uh, we do know that through Facebook's own discovery that for young women, for young girls, Facebook is not good. And I don't think it's good to, you know, you post something on Facebook, then like Narciss, you stare at it to see how many comments you got or how many people responded to it. And um, not only are there more narcissists today than there were in the 80s by like three times more of them, um, but the desire to be famous has also grown. That people that want fame, has grown dramatically in the last few years. And so in a culture, in the selfie culture, in a culture that is obsessed with self, we want to find out what is the proper balance for us when we look at ourselves. And how do we want to live so that God might be able to be blessed by the time 
that we are spending together, uh, that are, are be blessed by the time that they are living here and living for him. All right. So that'll be just in a couple of hours. You can join us online. Um, you can join us at our East campus tonight at six o'clock or tomorrow for all three of our Sunday morning services at both campuses. Love to have you there or love to have you watching us online. All right. One more time. You can subscribe. This is now a podcast. We actually started TruthQuest Q&A before we started our TruthQuest podcast, but this is now a podcast and you can subscribe to TruthQuest podcast with Robert Furrow by looking that up. There's a few TruthQuest podcasts. So look up Robert Furrow, subscribe, and um, you'll get our full length teachings. You'll get our hot topics, which are 10 to 15 minutes generally, and you'll get these Q&As and you'll be able to listen to them while you're driving. All right. So God bless you guys. Really good to see you. I look forward to talking to you guys on Wednesday night. We'll do another um, Q&A on Wednesday night, but it's really good to see you guys. Hope you guys are blessed. We will see you later on. I'm going to go ahead and sign out. Um, stay close to Jesus. Serve him. Love him. Follow him. All right. God bless you guys. Uh, we will see